Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. This is our second Sunday in our vision casting season as a church. And I realize that in many ways, this is a strange time to be casting vision. Some of you might even be thinking, why on earth is hope casting vision in the middle of a global pandemic? We don't know what next week will bring, let alone 10 years. What are they thinking? Well, let me just say, I've noticed and I've discovered in my life that God often works in seasons. Adele Calhoun talks about seasons of the soul, and there's also seasons of the church. And spring, which is a season which is often marked by growth and by enthusiasm. Summer is a season that is often marked by ability and abundance. Autumn is often a mixed bag season of beginnings and endings. And then there's winter. Winter is when things go underground. Um, winter is the season of shutdowns. Winter is the season of waiting and the apparent lack of life. And I say apparent because, because it's while everything appears to be dead, the surprising truth about winter is that things are not dead. Life is there, it's just hidden. Life is underground in seed form. It's growing, it's developing, waiting to burst forth. And that's the image I want to give you. I think that this past year has been a long winter. And I'm not ignoring or downplaying the hardships of this past year. But I do believe spring is coming, a season of growth, a season of enthusiasm for our church. And for the next few months, What I basically want to do is I basically want to paint a picture of this spring season. A a vision, as I talked about last week, is basically a picture of tomorrow that produces passion today, as it's been said. And that's what we hope to do. We want to paint a picture of tomorrow that produces passion today. And in particular, we want to paint a picture of our church 10 years out. And so, what would you notice if you visited our church in 10 years' time? What does Hope 2031 look like? What are we up to? We're going to be bad at plenty of things in 10 years' time. But what are we good at? What are we really good at? What has God shaped us to do uniquely as a local church in this city we love? That's the picture I want to paint for the next few months. Think of this vision casting season as an episode of Bob Ross. Like Bob, we have a good idea of where we're going, but we also expect some surprises, some big old trees right in the front of the foreground. We express, we expect all kinds of surprises as we paint. We want to be flexible and spirit led as God guides our church. And we realized, too, that we could have spent the next few months or even years perfecting the vision of hope and then having this great reveal when the paint has dried. 
But we chose instead to invite you into the studio as the leadership works this vision out in real time. And so to do this, we're going to be talking about seven broad themes that we hope will characterize our church in the future. And we're going to talk about these themes in various ways through our podcast, which is called Profiles in Hope, by recommending resources to you and by offering in-house resources to you. And yes, with this sermon series. And if you were with us last week, you know, we began talking about vocation. Vocation has always been important to us as a church, but it's always been kind of underground. It's been something we talk about, but we don't really emphasize in a central way. But I think this concept, this truth of vocation is going to play a more central role in our church. And so last week what we did is we took a big overview look of vocation in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we learned that vocation basically means calling. And we learned that God calls each and every one of us to expand the borders of Eden to the entire world. And that's part of what it means we learn to be in the image of God. We are like angled mirrors reflecting God, not just to himself, but we're reflecting God out into the world. And then as we do so, we are reflecting our work and, and we are reflecting what we are involved in back up to God. Expanding Eden as angled mirrors. That's the big picture. And honestly, it can be kind of a vague idea. And so today I want to sharpen that image. I want to unpack specifically what it would look like to be an angled mirror. But first, let's pray. Lord, would you speak for your servants are listening this morning. And Holy Spirit, we need your empowering presence now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you know that I've recently acquired a new-to-me guitar. It's a beautiful handmade string a steel string guitar, and it's what I like to call functional art. By itself, it's beautiful to behold. It's art. But it is also meant to be played. It's functional. And when this guitar is played well, the form of the guitar, how it was made, and the function of the guitar, why it was made, are in perfect alignment. And it's amazing. And the same could be said, frankly, of any well-designed instrument. It's functional art. Well, inside the sound hole of this guitar is a label. Uh, These labels tell you the model and the make of the guitar. And my guitar has this too, but my label has something else on it as well. It has a signature right over the top of the label. And it's the signature of the person who made it. The signature is is really cool. It's not only a mark of authenticity, but it's a mark of pride by the luthier who made the thing. This luthier is proud of his work. And when people see this guitar and more importantly, hear this guitar in action, this artisan 
wants to make sure that people see his signature on it. That is exactly how God views his creation. In Genesis, he calls everything he made good, which means he signs everything with his signature. I made this, and it is very good. And this is true of all creation, and it's especially true of humanity. It isn't actually until God creates humanity that he says, very good. And in Genesis 1.27, as we saw last week, God says that we are made in his image. We literally have his signature on our body and soul. And like my guitar, we are not meant to sit in a case or to hang in a case for people to just look at. We are functional art made by God, the artisan. We are meant to make music. We are meant to make things. We are meant to to take part in things. We are meant to move and to go and to do. And wherever we go, wherever we move, wherever we do, whatever music we make, People will look at the signature and they will say, that is an amazing maker. That is an amazing artisan. But too often, don't we, we, we stay in the case, locked up. I think whenever we relegate God to just spiritual things in our lives, and not to the other 98% of the things that we do in our life, we're like an artisan guitar sitting in his case, just gathering dust. But instead, God calls us out into all of life. And that's what it means to be in God's image. Last week, we borrowed the image of the angled mirror to talk about the image of God. That we're not horizontal mirrors just facing straight back up. So that when God says we image him, we're not just reflecting him back to himself. But as one theologian puts it, we are an angled mirror reflecting God out and also reflecting creation back to God. This means that every single thing we do is and should be sacred. Not just churchy things or spiritual things, but everything. Because it's an opportunity to reflect God's character out, And it is an invitation to offer what we do back to God. That's what we talked about last week. And so I encourage you actually to listen to last week's sermon uh, to dig in more if you haven't already. But this morning I want to get more specific. What exactly does it look like to offer our work to God? And what does it look like to reflect God into our work? And before I get started, it's worth saying again that when I talk about work and when we talk about work in the coming months and years, we're not just talking about paid work. I'm not just talking about your career. I'm not just talking about what you do for a living, but all that you do in your living, all of our doings, all of our endeavors. That's what we talk about when we talk about work. And that can be paid work. And oftentimes our paid work is what we do most of our days. And so it's important to connect that to this angled mirror image. And that's what we're going to do. 
So the first direction I want to talk about this morning is how we can reflect our work back up to God. What would it look like to offer the things that we do to God? And to answer this, I want to use three uh, important phrases that have been used throughout church history. And these phrases are in the dead language of Latin, which makes them sound way cooler than they probably ought to. But I'm going to say them in the Latin and then what they mean in English. And the first is soli deo gloria, which means to God be glory alone. And then second is coram deo, which means before the face of God. And the third, you've heard me talk about, missio Dei, which means the mission of God. Let's talk about each of these phrases. Each of them are rooted in scripture and are profoundly countercultural in the way that we approach our daily work. In fact, I would encourage you to write these phrases down or to remember these phrases so that you can have a handy reference as you go about your day about what it would look like for you to offer your daily doings to God. The first is soli deo gloria. To God alone be glory. This phrase is a stick of dynamite that breaks down and destroys any wall that would separate the sacred from the secular. Because it means that everything that we do can be to God's glory. Your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. And there you see the Apostle Paul saying, So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything, all, whatever you do, Paul says, can be and must be to God's glory. Everything we do, even eating breakfast in the morning, is and can be sacred because it can be. Glorify God. Now, what does glorify even mean? Uh, One theologian defines glorifying this way. Feeling and thanking and acting. So that's a very holistic picture of what it means to be human. Feeling, thinking, and acting in ways that reflect God's greatness and beauty. Maybe it's easier to imagine preaching a sermon like I am now uh, that does this, that glorifies God, that reflects the greatness and beauty of God. But it is possible to fill a spreadsheet in your office, to push a stroller in your neighborhood, to throw a Frisbee in the park, to make a meal in the kitchen, uh, to compose a song in the studio, to finish math homework in the study hall in a way that reflects God's greatness and beauty. How? How do we do that? Well, what does Paul say? Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. To the glory of God. That means the opposite of doing it to your own glory. Reflecting your greatness. So a couple ideas. Simple repentance. As a daily, hourly practice, we notice and we repent or turn from doing things for our own self-glory and for our own self-reputation. When we notice that we're doing something solely for ourselves, living in sort of our own kingdom for our own glory, we we subtly and quickly just say, Lord, I, I turn from that attitude. And number two, simple awareness, awareness of the Lord's presence. 
We can wake up and we can say, Lord, what are we going to do this morning and this afternoon and this evening? And we can say, Lord, when you're doing anything, Lord, this is for you. Um, I was talking to a friend. As we cut strawberries, we can think to ourselves, Lord, this is for you. I want to cut this strawberry beautifully and in a way that reflects your greatness. Would your beauty somehow be reflected in this? Simple awareness. And so that's Soli Deo Gloria. But let me tell you about another one. Coram Dei. This phrase phrase means before God's face. And we can see it all over scripture. But we will look at Psalm 56, 13 for this. Psalm 56, 13. So Psalm 56, 13 says, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. The reason God rescues us, this passage tells us, is so that we can walk before God. Coram Dei. This means that everything that we do is before the face of God. Of God. And the implications of this for our life is huge. One theologian puts it this way quote, It means that David, King David, was as religious when he obeyed God's call to be a shepherd as when he was anointed with the special grace of kingship. It means that Jesus was every bit as religious when he worked in his father's carpenter shop as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. All of life is Koran Day. Now, I, I know what some of you are thinking. This can be bad news if, if you feel as if God is against you or if God is against you. But if you are in Christ, we know that God is for you. If you are united to Jesus by faith, then the way that God looks at his son Jesus is the way that God looks at you. We say in the benediction, the ironic benediction, may God's face shine upon you. We know this is true in Jesus, that God's face shines on you. That, that, that when he looks at you, there is, there is delight and tenderness and joy. We don't fear his face. Because in Christ, God's face has creases from smiling and delighting in his people. One of my favorite memories as a child was taking my dad to the place my friends would uh, and I would skate, uh, skateboard. I know there's all kinds of different skating out there. Uh, and we would skateboard in rural Indiana. So there wasn't really much uh, to work with. But I walked my dad to this area that I would go to often. And I showed off this very, very poor um, nose slide on the edge of a neighborhood garden box on the side of our potholed rural street. And the reason it's one of my favorite memories is because my dad delighted in it. That's what Coram Deo means in Christ. We do everything for an audience of one who happens to be very delighted in us. 
our Father, our Dad in heaven. I mean, I think too many of us, we live our life thinking God is like a rehearsal judge at a music conservatory where we're, we're showing our, uh, we're trying out to be accepted into the program. But when we have his smile, when, when, the, when the verdict is already in because of what Jesus has done, justified, saved, rescued, and more than that, delighted in because they are my family, adopted into my family, then we can go all out in all that we do because we have his face and his face is shining on you. We have great joy and freedom and love as secure children. Koram. Dale. And then lastly, we have to talk again about Missio Day, which means the mission of God. If you've been with us the past few months, this phrase will be familiar to you. It means the mission of God, and it means the centrality of the mission of God. And it highlights the truth that all of life is wrapped up and brought into God's great mission to expand His glory. To all the earth. To fix all that is broken. With the world. To expand the borders of Eden. To the entire world. This mission of God. Is everything. It begins in Genesis 1 and 2. Where God essentially says to humanity. Go. Go and expand Eden. And bless the world. Reflect my greatness. Reflect my beauty. Reflect my character to all the world. Go. We sinned, but God's mission remains. So in Genesis 12, just 12 chapters later, God calls Abraham to himself miraculously, changes his name, says, you're Abraham, and he says essentially the same thing. Go, expand Eden, bless the world with my blessing. And then in the Gospels, Jesus says the same thing. He says, in his resurrection body, he says, Go, make disciples, expand Eden. Bless the world with my blessing and with the news of my coming and the news of my salvation. And then in Revelation, we see one massive thing. Mission accomplished. Eden has indeed been expanded to encompass the whole world. And this mission of God means all sorts of things. It means, number one, that everything you do today should be oriented and directed towards God's mission. Church work and homework, prayer time and paperwork, raising church funds as much as raising kids. It's all floating on the big river that is God's mission. It also means that if we work we work for different reasons than the world. We work to bless others and to honor God. We, we, we work to fulfill the great commandments. Love God and love neighbor. We want to bless others with the blessing we've received from God. And so self-centered living and self-centered working uh, is demolished when we see this privilege of being on God's mission. When we start living for his name and not our name, this sort of idea of working for our glory diminishes and it gets sort of the oxygen of it gets sucked out and it starts to die and wither. It means we spend more times on the margins of life. 
Because we don't need to be noticed to feel okay. Our okayness is in Jesus. We don't need to be perfect or to be seen as perfect in the eyes of others. We are released to bless others. So, how do we offer our work to God? We remember that we're working to God's glory alone. We remember that we're working before God's face, His kind face, and we remember that we're working in the mission of God. That's what it means to reflect our work back up to God. All that we do can be an offering to God and in service to God. And so that's the one direction. There's another direction that I want to talk about before we wrap up this evening, and that's the direction of reflecting God uniquely into the things that we do. In other words, imaging God as image bearers of God should inform how we work, how we do. Our being informs our doing. I love how Dorothy Sayers puts it. Yes, the crime writer uh, Dorothy Sayers was also a deep Christian thinker and activist, if you didn't know that. And she says, the only Christian work is good work, well done. And I would only add, in grace. I love that definition. Good work, well done, in grace. And so what does it mean to reflect something of God into our daily work? It means that our work will be good work, well done, in grace. So let's look at each one of those phrases. We reflect God into our work by doing good work. Good work. And there's, we can discern whether the work we're doing is good or not in two ways. What I like to call God's word and God's whisper. So first, God's word. We ask ourselves if what we're doing, whether it's our career 24-7, it feels like sometimes at least five, uh, at least a lot of the hours of our day, uh, or it can just be our hobbies, it can be anything that we're doing and setting ourselves to. We ask ourselves, is this out of tune with God and what he's revealed himself in his word to be? So behind me right now is a piano. The tuning on this, for better or worse, is set. It's set. Um, it's sort of the house standard. And so if any of the other instruments we have, we want to play together and we want the piano involved, we all have to tune to the piano. That's just the reality of it. Um, we need to tune to it. And that's what God calls us to do with our lives. He's the standard. He's the standard. And so we need to tune ourselves to him in all of our daily doings. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Putting a yoke in the agricultural uh, culture was literally putting sort of a, a wooden um, kind of Yoke, for lack of a better word, over you. You literally put Jesus on you. That's, that's a way of saying, I am aligning my life with yours, Jesus. I am tuning my life to your standard, Jesus. And of course, Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And when you do this, you are actually becoming more beautiful and you're becoming more in tune with what it means to be truly human. As Jesus is the God-man. And so we ask ourselves, are we in alignment? Are we in tune 
with what God reveals in his word. With what I do. The second thing we can do is we can listen to God's whisper. That's what I call God's whisper because what we do is we ask God in prayer and we ask uh, those in our life, in our community, um, what is it that you are uniquely calling me to today? In this season of life. And this is murky area because we don't have hard and fast uh, uh, answers to these questions. But we can ask God and we can ask the community that we're in to help us discern what it is that we are in this season of life called to do that is good work. Is there a unique need or is there a unique uh, fallen? uh, There's just something that's fallen and broken in my life right now or that needs attention. Or is there a um, is there some kind of obligation that needs my commitment right now today that I can put myself to and that God, you are indeed calling me to. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. And so we ask, how can I uniquely love God and love neighbor with my life and work today? This can be profoundly ordinary. It can be profoundly radical. In fact, it's come to my attention that there have been two books published in the last decade or so with these exact titles, Ordinary and Radical. And so these two books might present a false choice for Christians. What do I need to be, ordinary or radical? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Paul says on the one hand in Romans Don't be conformed to the world, which means that Christians are radical nonconformists. Paul also says to the Thessalonians, live a quiet life and work with your hands. Radical, ordinary, which is true. Exactly. Both are true. And we are simply called to be faithful to what God is calling us to. Good work. That's how we reflect God in what we do. We reflect God with good work. We reflect God with good work. Well done. Well done. Let's talk about that for a minute. We reflect something of God's character into what we do. We could look at every attribute of God and we could consider how these attributes impact our daily doings. Uh, But I'd like to explore just two, God's creation and God's restoration. So first we work well. We work well when it reflects God's creativity. When it reflects something about God's creative power. He made everything so well. And with so much diversity. Which one of my favorite poets, uh, Gerald Manley Hopkins, he calls it pied beauty. Pied means multicolored, multifaceted, multivariegated. Our, our dog, Dewey, is, is pied. Okay? And the world is pied. And it's so very well made by God. And so... We aim our work and our daily doings to be likewise. One of my favorite biblical examples of this is Bezalel and Aholiab. And so if you listen to Exodus 31, I'll just read some of it. Uh, You'll be introduced to these two biblical characters. Here's Exodus 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, 
of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. This is spirit-empowered craftsmanship. I love Paul the Apostle, who describes himself as a skilled master builder. He's, he's, you know, we all know he made tents, or, or if you didn't know that, Paul made tents. He made leather houses, basically, for folks that were able to be packed up and moved. And I'm assuming that they were very well-made tents. He also describes his ministry as, as being a skilled, master-built thing. We should all pursue this kind of excellence in artistry in everything we do. We do our work well when it reflects God's creativity. We also do our work well when it reflects God's restoration. Uh, God not only makes good things, he restores good things. He restores the things that he made called good and that are broken by the fall. Revelation says, Behold, I am making all things new. Not brand new, like scrapping everything he made to present something brand new, but renewed. God does not give up on what he made, as my professor uh, Michael Williams would put it. In that case, Satan wins. No, God doesn't scrap creation to make something new. He renews what he called very good and that we broke. He renews it. Jesus himself is new in his resurrection, but he bears his scars. This means that God is a master restorationist, and we do our best when it reflects, uh, we do our best work when it reflects this attribute of God. He doesn't give up on hard, messy, difficult things, and he makes them beautiful. You've heard me talk about Kintsugi pottery. It's an ancient Japanese art tradition, and it means golden joinery. Because when a pot breaks, instead of trying to repair it so that nobody notices it, uh, the brokenness, Kintsugi, uh, what they do is repair it with gold, which actually draws attention to the fractures. And in strange, unexpected ways, makes the pot actually more beautiful. God is a restorationist like that. And as one person puts it, the places that we've been burned can become places that we've been forged. The places we've been broken become stories of redemption and renewal. And all that we do should reflect this too. The world is broken. Work is broken. We don't expect uh, Eden in our workplace. And so our work is utterly realistic about struggles and failures. But we don't let these struggles and failures have the last word. And we pursue beauty even in it. We reflect God in our work by doing good work. Well done. And then lastly and quickly, in grace. Listen to Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We are God's creation. We are God's artisan craft, um, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are the guitar with God's signature on it. He's proud of what he made. He's proud of making you in Christ. And he has amazing things for you 
to walk in. But guess what? God doesn't need it. That's the radical, even offensive news of the gospel. God does not need your work. But he made you so well, and he invites you and has works for you to do in advance. Because guess what? As the reformers like to say, God doesn't need your work, but your neighbor does. But your neighbor does. Your children do. Your friend does. Your colleague does. And because we don't need the work to please God, because we have his favor and his smile, we can work to bless others with a radical freedom that is unique to the gospel. We're not saved by our works. Religious work, corporate work, homework. Any doing that we do, God does not need it. We are saved and rescued by sheer grace. And our work will be at its best when we remember that we are not saved by our work. This protects us from pride. It protects us from despair. And who's tasted those two things in the sphere of your doings? Who's, who's, um, when we do a good job, we immediately tend to get proud. When we fail, we immediately give up. But we are saved by grace. So the work we do can't save us. The work we do can't damn us. And so we go forth with a boldness. Our work is no longer self-absorbed. It's no longer neurotic. It's no longer nervous. We can unleash our work into the world and feel okay because our okayness is in Jesus. This also enables us to rest. We can rest from our work weekly. We can rest from our work monthly. We can rest from our work yearly because God doesn't need our work. I remember the first time I took a Sunday off a long time ago, I felt like the church would fall apart. That's pride. That's pride. And guess what? The church didn't fall apart. If anything, it thrives, right? That's the secret. Um, see, grace is an ego deflator. God doesn't need your work, but once that seeks in, it empowers you and your work improves. Why? Because nothing is writing on it. Friends, you are an angled mirror. You exist to reflect your work to God and you exist to reflect God into your work as a witness. Offering and witness. We as a church want to come alongside you in this journey as you discern what that might look like. We don't think for a second that two sermons is going to uh, be exactly what the church needs and here we are, we're doing great. Uh, we anticipate becoming a church that fosters this in more and more tangible ways. One way you can uh, I guess get started in this, as I mentioned earlier, is our book discussion on every good endeavor. I just encourage you, if this is interesting to you, I would encourage you to uh, take up that challenge and find that book. Um, if you have trouble getting that book yourself, we'll, we'll get you a copy and join us uh, in discussion of this book. I'm excited to see what comes of this discussion and, and how it generates um, uh, new and fresh things in our church. In the meantime, though, I want you to just think of one mundane thing, one task that's before you in the coming week. And now I want you to ask yourself, how can that one mundane action or thing be both an offering to God and a witness of God? Let's pray. Lord, would you indeed empower us to do that, to be an angled mirror by your grace?
And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.